0: Here yeah. Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from a cool Brooklyn. And I'm excited to be talking to my guest who has had experience at my other home. And that's actually where we met. Another local citizen was getting married. And so that's how we cross paths and then also cross paths again uh, in his local where he is now but I'll let him get more into that once we get into the conversation and so I'll go straight to his bio. He is an experienced international advisor and development program manager with more than a decade of international experience working and living in developing countries. From early in his career Eunice played a key role affording him a strong background in labor organizations and working with development projects and programs in the civic and social sectors on the local, national and international levels. His international profile began to take shape in 2012 with the production of The Good Growth, a documentary making a critical assessment of the social impacts of economic growth by comparing the reality in Brazil, the Philippines and Ghana against each other and to the Danish context. The documentary is available on YouTube and you'll see that in the show notes, as well has been translated into English, Spanish, French and Arabic to reach a a wide base of international trade union leaders and activists. Tobias Bomsgard, welcome to the podcast. Now, did I pronounce your name correctly?
1: Good enough to pass. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay. <laughs> thanks. 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 Okay. So, please, can you pronounce it for us, please, so that we we know how to say it in plain? Yeah. Danish, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think uh, Tobias uh, goes uh, widely internationally, but Bounskor is the more yes. tricky part. And yeah, uh, as you already know, uh, I, I have an American yes. wife, and uh, that is constant headache of trying to you know, patch together a family name that everybody can pronounce.
0: I'm sure. Okay. Okay. So I'll try it. I'll try Bounskor. Bounskor. Yeah, that'll work. score. Okay. Okay. I think I got a little bit better there. <laughs> <laughs> So, Tobias, can you uh, tell us, let's get started, where are you from, where are you local, and what is your craft?
1: Yeah, as already revealed, I'm a, I'm a Dane. I'm, I, I come from Denmark, the small Scandinavian country, grew up in a fairly r- r- rural, remote part of Western Denmark, and left there uh, at the age of 28, back in 2011, where I, uh, I started an international career that has, up until now, brought me to uh, Ethiopia. Where I am right now, I'm here uh, mainly because I'm a trading spouse right now. My my wife has a job and a contract in Ethiopia, so I'm working from home as a as a freelance consultant. But but before that, we've been traveling a little bit. We've been living in Tanzania, we've been living in Mozambique, and just before I uh, I came here to Ethiopia, I I worked a bit in in Asia for three years. So it my job has taken me around the world, and my job is as you also revealed in the bio. I, I'm a labor activist. I am an advisor and a strategist in terms of development of strong, independent, sustainable trade unions uh, around the world.
0: Mm. And that is the reason that we are so curious about your work. So you said that your work, would you would you say that is also your craft?
1: That is my craft, yeah. I actually, this month, I celebrate uh, 24 years of membership Of the trade union that I work for, meaning that I, uh, you know, it's intertwined, my work, my craft, my, my civic engagement. It's, it's all sort of revolving around trade unionism and, and civic engagement. When it comes to craft, craft, I, I, I don't really have one. I'm, I'm an honest laborer. I, uh, I never took any formal education. So, uh, and that's also how I got involved with, uh, with trade unionism. I worked on skilled jobs and got unionized working those jobs and, uh, yeah, slowly sort of drifted into doing it more professionally rather than just an, an activist at workplace level.
0: Sure, sure, sure. So, so I want to get into how a young man who's in a small area in uh, Denmark decides that the world is where he wants to end up. And so take us back to those days of when you were early in the trade union work and, and figuring out, you know, how you were growing your career.
1: Yeah. Oddly enough, as
0: a kid, as a young man,
1: I was, I was a scaredy cat. I everything new and big and foreign was scary so taking the bus or the train to a neighboring city was a bit of a challenge so i'm not entirely sure Mm -hmm. where that changed but but in my early teens i i suppose i got more adventurous and eventually ended up taking 10th grade at uh, boarding school which was a big uh, shift for me never really came back from boarding school i uh I decided mm-hmm. education was not for me, so the year after that spring school, I took a job, an all-skilled job working at a farm, mm-hmm. uh, which took me a little bit away from from where I grew up. Started a life of my own, uh, you know, in the age of 17, got a, got a wage, got mm-hmm. bills to pay, uh, and sort of developed a consciousness around working conditions and, and job conditions in yeah. general and so uh mm-hmm. i had a bit of background with me my dad was a labor activist he was a union uh, rep at the factory where he worked so it was sort of mm-hmm. uh, i don't know it, it i had it from home that that trade unionism was something positive that you joined mm-hmm. when you joined the labor market and so, so that became center of of what i did
0: Mm. mm. okay okay very interesting so it,
1: I think the first, the first uh, going out into the world was not so much a, a pull into the world; it was was a push away from my small local community. It was uh, a, a genuine mm-hmm. concern that our babies would be born with webbed feet. You know, a small community; it was, ah! it was getting a little too close. <laughs> Somebody needed to leave.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. And so you you ventured out and you are now kind of in the workforce and and finding your way and then how does the documentary and and actually now leaving the country? Become your story.
1: Yeah, that was after working these uh, unskilled jobs, being a labour uh, union activist, uh, being a board member at my local union branch, and all these things. Eventually, uh, I, I got employed by the union as a as a professional organizer, as a as a uh, trade union officer, and uh, and this is in uh, like around 2008, where we. In Europe, just in the early 2000s, had an opening and expansion of the European Union to include a number of the former Soviet republics or affiliated republics in Eastern Europe. So we started to see in the Danish labor market that we had an influx of people from Eastern Europe that could now freely migrate and come and work in Denmark, which gave us a few challenges. It was it was people that we've not been used to working with before. They were not used to our way of trade unionism, of organizing, working conditions. Mm. So there was like a, a cultural gap. And they came and sort of, not deliberately of course, but, but they sort of undermined local working conditions in Denmark. And that forced um, me as a young man, but also some of the more senior th- trade unionists in Denmark to look out a little more internationally to draw experience. And so I, I made a study tour to uh, to London, actually, where they were building the uh, the Olympic village. Um, and they had some experience with migrating labor that we tried to learn from. And that was sort of the first look out into the world of trade unionism uh, internationally. That led to later in, in 2010, I joined uh, a training program uh, with the ILO in, um, in Geneva during their uh, annual labor conference, uh, where a, a group of Scandinavian trade unionists did a training session on international labor standards and how the uh, UN agency, the ILO, implements growth standards and so on and so forth. And and that gave me sort of a further push into the international uh, arena of, of of trade unionism. And then my own union, who has a long-standing history of doing international solidarity and aid with sister organizations, sister trade unions around the world, posted a job in Mozambique where we needed a trade union advisor to go and assist uh, and advise uh, in our South African regional program in Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa, Malawi. So I, I applied for the job and got it. And on the day that I was in the airport leaving Denmark to go for this posting in, in Mozambique, I got a phone call from uh, from another trade union organization, our confederation in Denmark, that they sort of had me on the radar and that they were doing this documentary and they would like me to be the <laughs> lead character in the documentary Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I'm clueless, <laughs> I'm in the airport, I'm about to leave for Mozambique, call my employer and see if you can work something out with them, which they did. Um, and yeah. so that, that brought me to to travel to the three countries that you mentioned, the Philippines, uh, Ghana and Brazil, to compare how uh-huh. economic growth was managed and handled differently in those contexts. And that was through you know visits to ordinary people, workers, people working yep. ordinary jobs uh, and sort of having an insight into their lives. And and Rodel, the guy in the Philippines, was quite surprised that there were even economic growth in the Philippines, not something he noticed in his daily life. Uh, whereas in, in Brazil, right. you know, they, they could all, they all had testimonies of uh, social progress, social programs and reforms. And everybody felt like, you know, that there was progress, things were developing. And then Ghana was the sort of, the new example, Ghana had discovered mm-hmm. oil at the time. They mm-hmm. had, you know, in the horizon, they have potential wealth coming in. They already had growth rates. And now the way that the, the documentary was, Ghana is sort of at a pathway where they can make a conscious decision to follow the example of, for instance, Brazil, or uh, sort of let brutal market capitalism rule and and go the Filipino way. Uh, so, so that was quite interesting for a... A young guy to to get the opportunity to travel and to can you imagine somebody paying you to travel and ask stupid questions it was it was. Fun. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right at that yeah yeah but you did a, you did a fine job of of being very kind of raw and just kind of really showing your surprise and and interest in the differences that were were taking place and so this many years later looking at each of those markets they're in drastically different each of them i think is in a drastically different place and so when you look back now what what are your your now takeaways or what are your thoughts on on each of those markets
1: i'm sad to say that it, it, globally, things seems to be moving more in the direction of the Filipino example.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Brazil turned out not to be uh, the wonderful example that that we saw back then. It took a hit back. Uh, it had political change. Now Lula is back in charge. I I, I have great great hopes for that. Ghana, I've lost a little bit of touch uh, somehow, but uh, but I don't see wealth being uh, used as an as an engine for a more uh, equal uh, division of 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 wealth i don't see the the social progress that we that we could hope to see and i think that is that is sort of, sort of somehow a gravitational point for the trade union work that i've been trying to do uh, throughout my career is the establishment and the building of a middle class and that's just what we don't see taking off in uh, in many contexts
0: unfortunately Right, right. And particularly with regard to working class peoples. So where, in my observation of what's going on, particularly in Africa, is that the emerging, the middle class is emerging for, I guess, not skilled labor, but service in the service industry. So people who are in education that's one, or people who are going into banking, maybe going into financial services, that type of thing. That's where the middle class is opening up in that kind of service. But right, I mean, as you point out, for the, the everyday worker, the informal worker, all of those things, the middle class is is a far reach for them.
1: Exactly. So you, you, you see some sort of uh, worker's Aristocracy developing, where there are certain sectors, mm-hmm. certain types of jobs that sort of guarantees you access to the middle class, access to uh, welfare, uh, social benefits, and pensions. Whereas you see in in the in the other uh, more precarious informal economy of service, uh, everything from. Uh, whatever local version of Uber, uh, these things comes at sort of a more gig economy base where uh, services are being exchanged, but there's no future, there's no career, there's no savings, there's no... You know, the, the, the promise of the middle class never materializes. And, yeah. and that in the world economy as we have it today, I, th- I think that's a dead end because those people don't become consumers in the same way either. So at some point, I think it's going to grind to a standstill because nobody has surplus money to spend
0: yeah and and what are your thoughts on the digital economy? You know there's that is a you know some argue that that is democratizing access to capital in a lot of ways. and I'm not so sure so what are what are your thoughts on labor in the digital economy and how that potentially may or may not stem the 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 tide of you know the the diminishing middle class or even the the worker aristocracy that you described
1: I, i'm skeptical uh, like as mm-hmm. you are i i think that that mm-hmm. of course digitalization would be limited to a number of jobs and services that can naturally take place in a digital world whereas manufacturing uh, you know construction agriculture there's still a number of things that needs to be done as manual labor. But even within the sphere of digitalization, I think it's a, honestly, I think it's a good old classic. Profit gets privatized, but risks mm. and running costs and everything get socialized, meaning that it is no longer a corporation or an employer that puts up the infrastructure for the work, the workplace itself, that becomes put either on society or on the individual worker. So although that comes with some level of empowerment, at the other hand, it it becomes the individual worker holding up the majority of all the risks and all the downsides and all the running costs. Whereas uh, whoever uh, you, uh, as an individual may work for, just to harvest the the benefits of it.
0: Whew, scary times <laughs> uh, that we're, we're we're coming up on. But
1: positive times as well.
0: Yes, there's, that is another,
1: true. there's... I mean, we've been, the, from my perspective, the global labor movement have have taken some hits and we've gone back, but we do start to see stuff. We see people start organizing at yeah. Amazon. We start to see Starbucks. Mm-hmm. We, you know, so there's also momentum these days. The Scandinavian workers have have chosen to face Elon Musk head on and, and want to collective bargain in yeah. Tesla, uh, which has never really been met with such demands before. So, you know, there's good and bad, but I also see positive trends, most definitely.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm with you there, most definitely, most definitely. So let's get back to the roots of um, unions because I think a lot of people are kind of like, oh, unions—they come, they just ha- make everything terrible. This kind of thing. So tell us, you know, for for someone here that's entirely green on the idea of unions and why they're important and what they offer. Give us a union's one one
1: <laughs> Well, one, it it, <laughs> it it is a a, a union. Of people, of workers with mutual interests surrounding uh, salaries, wages, working conditions, and that they utilize their, actually, it's a human right to first of all associate into unions. And secondly, it's also Mm -hmm. a human right to negotiate and bargain collectively. It is, Mm -hmm. I mean, roughly, it is an attempt to try to build a monopoly around labor power. If you want to buy my labor power, there's a fixed price on it. You're not going to negotiate with us individually, Mm -hmm. pinning us against each other. Mm -hmm. We have some collective demands and expectations to our work life. So it's a band of workers that have agreed to try to standardize working conditions and wages and are willing to ultimately withhold their labor power if their demands are not met. And I think that's, that's one of the key issues that as as you just said in your, in your question now, isn't union just outsiders coming in and creating trouble? And I think that's a false narrative that has slowly grown, that trade unions in a workplace should be like a third party or an external agent. It is not. Mm-hmm. It is a commitment right. among the workers in that workplace. So for instance, when Elon Musk says that he first direct negotiation and direct engagement with his workers rather than having an external third party involved it's a false narrative there is no third party by negotiating with a union he's mm. negotiating mm-hmm. with the legitimate representative of his workers that they have chosen democratically through good civil society structures you know so so, so there is no outsider troublemaker coming in as an infiltration it, it is the workers in the workplace who choose to join a union, who choose to bargain collectively, or at least raise demands collectively. So, of course, workers uh, have a collective interest in 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 fighting for decent jobs uh, decent jobs that can, as we talked about before, put the middle class, but that the very least can put uh, you know food on the table, money aside yeah. for education for themselves and their kids. And right. if if that is not addressed collectively, there's a high risk that it it you know workers become competitors pinned against each other uh, that mm-hmm. is why in this yeah, imbalance in the labor market where you have uh, strong employers and uh, potentially weak workers unless you you give them the rights to collective bargaining and you give them the rights to to form trade unions and collectively uh, negotiate for better conditions so so that's why the system is set up in in the way it is uh, in many uh, individual national countries but also by the uh, UN agency the ILO the International Labour Organization where many of these standards are set
0: and so what what we do know is that it feels like unions were part of an effort to socialize capitalism, I guess, in a way, right? Because capitalism came in and was all about the bottom line and profits, and it was leaving the the key components of that behind. And so if we didn't have capitalism, do you believe that there would still be a role for unions?
1: Oh, it's a, t- it's a tricky question. I mean, the most uh, successful trade unions we've seen have actually operated in the system of capitalism. Uh, where we've seen uh, trade unions being banned under socialism, uh, communism, trade unions being made into something different than you and I may may know now, more taking care of social needs of workers, taking care of their vacation needs, setting up vacation homes, uh, sort of a a benefit-based system rather than a bargaining agent. So I, I think in a capitalist system is where you see trade unions being uh, most relevant and thriving the best but i think it's it is an attempt to level the playing field in a capitalist system so it doesn't become the individual worker negotiating and fending for himself but but there's a collective interest to be to be careful
0: sure 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 so i want to take a step Aside and, and kind of fast forward to the why the where. So you got this call, you went on this initial you know tour of the world to talk about labor and understand it more and then you embarked on a career away so i want to kind of get a sense of the why the where for how you started to make a home in these developing countries and how you ended up in uh, ethiopia
1: so I, I i took this initial job in in uh, in Mozambique on a one-year contract which turned into a five-year stay uh, I uh, I I I met who is today my wife uh, and we then uh, later went to Tanzania where I uh, worked from there briefly and and altogether we sort of had a good 6 years of experience in Africa and needed a bit of a reality check uh, to to see if if we could still return to our Home countries, or live in Europe or whatever. Again, so to test that out, we moved back to Denmark, or I moved back to Denmark. My wife, uh, her first experience of living in Denmark, and we've yeah, been for a couple right? of years. And, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I, to be honest, I got restless. After a couple of ah. years at home, I were I I wanted to see the world again, and eventually this job came up in Asia, in Bangladesh, actually. Okay. And so we agreed that I could pursue that. I would uh, I would apply for a posting there, and and we would then spend vacations and whatnot together. I would commute in between Asia and and Copenhagen. So I interviewed on a Friday, and I think over the weekend my wife got a job offer here in. In Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and she said, "You know what? If I'm going to be alone with three kids, I might as well do in Africa <laughs> rather than stressful COVID." So, uh, right. good luck to you, so we got to commute back and forth between Africa and and Asia, and we had uh-huh. all sorts of elaborate plans of how to do that. Yeah, and this is I I I owe an explanation. This is in February 2020. Oh, right, and like okay. ten minutes after COVID, yeah. Hit, so, all our elaborate plans of seeing each other on on uh, you know vacations and commute back and forth all that was just not working anymore so so it was kind of a rough three years where we were still commuting back and forth, but I would spend half my time here in in, in Ethiopia and half the time in bangladesh and rather than a uh, frequent travel, I would take a month or two stint being in each place eventually, of course that became uh, that became. Too much. So when my contract was up for renewal, I I said no, thank you, and uh, and moved back here to the family, so to speak, in um, in Ethiopia where we are currently, and at least uh, at least up until June, where my wife's contract expires, and uh, and I think we are on to somewhere new after that. Where okay, we don't know.
0: <laughs> so tell us about your local in in Ethiopia, you're Addis. So you were commuting for a while and now you've found a place. So can you tell us a little bit more about living and working and playing in Addis?
1: Yes. So again, I think our, our experience with Addis needs to be seen in the perspective of COVID and a number mm. of um, conflicts that has been here uh, in Ethiopia during during the time we've been here, which has made traveling Around the countryside, fairly restricted. so uh, so actually, Addis has been uh, for the part of four years now uh, our our home, and we haven't been able to travel out and about the countryside as much as we would have wanted. Uh, one of the reasons we both took international jobs were to, to go and and explore a sea. And that has not been so much possible in in at least the past. Four years uh, while we've been here, and I think one of the reasons that we also want to transition and see something new, that does not mean that uh, I don't think it's a fair reflection of Ethiopia. I think it's the time mm-hmm. we've been here. I know people mm-hmm. who've been mm-hmm. here before us who, who who loved it here, and and I mean we've been here for four years, so it's not like we we've been scared and and run away. But I feel that there's there's more to see than uh, yeah than just Addis as a city.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, in, just in my short time there, I can, I can totally understand. I can probably get the energy of that restlessness because you know, while Addis is a, a a fine city, it's a city, and so knowing myself, I know that I want to get out and see landscapes and see different kinds of you know different aspects of the culture, so I can. Absolutely understand it. And having spoken to other Ethiopian guests, they also found it challenging. Like, sure, Addis, they've made it nice, a nice place to be, but it still doesn't change the fact that there's this whole beautiful country that is out there that folks would love to go and see and be a part of. But again, like you said, the political climate and situation does not necessarily afford that. It makes it a little bit difficult, and it's a pity because one of the
1: beautiful things about this country is its diversity. There's so many ethnic groups, Mm -hmm, there's so many cultures, mm -hmm. there's so many escapes, and not being able to take full advantage of experiencing all that is a bit of a pity. And then, let's be honest, Addis is a bubble in Ethiopia, and our expand community, international world is a bubble inside that bubble. Uh, Mm. All that taken into account, Mm -hmm, it, it, mm -hmm. it... it's not a reflection of, of the entirety of Ethiopia, right? Right. But nevertheless, there's no immediate signs that that is a change, and I think that that influences our decision to uh, to transition to where sure. we don't know yet. But, sure. but a, okay, a, okay,
0: okay. okay. We, tr-
1: we tried to do long term planning, and then COVID came, and long term planning did did us nothing good. So now we're not planning at all.
0: <laughs> Just letting the chips fall. I get it. <laughs> it. makes perfect sense. And it's, it's, I think it's also great to have that flexibility mindset, you know, because that is the nature of our world now is to, to really need to be more flexible um, based on yeah. the, the movement of borders. But, you know, we thought, we, we thought borders were going to be the same now in this modern world, but that seems to be, a moving target nowadays. So interesting, interesting times. So still on Addis, I want to ask about glocal speak. So you've been in Addis, so I think you might have some good words for us to share, to understand what the lingo is on the the roads of of Addis. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why you come to find it as glocal speak.
1: It's glocal in the sense that it's actually something I've been carrying with me for years, but mm, mm-hmm. the places I've been, I've been able to test it out and validate it. And it is very much applicable to Addis as well. Okay. So uh-huh. it's, it's it's again, t- tied very much into my passion and who I am. And yeah. it, it it's sort of short that any worker or any person should be able to live the middle-class lifestyle as we talked about based on their wages in the zip code where the wages are earned. Mm. Mm. Meaning that if you drive a city bus in New York, you should be able to afford living York
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a middle-class lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And if you are a construction worker in Copenhagen, You should be able to sustain yourself in Copenhagen, not based on the fact that you actually migrated from Ukraine and, uh, you know, can live a comfortable lifestyle home in Ukraine for your salary, but not really in Copenhagen. And the same applies to Addis. And I just see a huge flux of people that migrate in and out of city every day that cannot afford living in this huge city, but they work all types of service jobs here anyway. And and it's it's a phenomenon that I've seen no matter where I've been. That yeah. Pe- people cannot afford to live in their own community based on the salary that they can earn in that community. And it saddens me. And sad to say that I can just take off Addis on the map as yet another place where, where my little life sentence does not apply. I'm willing to fight for it, but I have a long way to go.
0: Mm, that's a really interesting perspective because... I feel like my entire life has been about watching people commute from outside of the cities where they, from the, I don't, I don't know many people who can afford to live where they work is, I mean, particularly being here in New York and, and, and definitely in my, my community in Ghana. So that's a, that's a true human crisis.
1: But isn't that a a weird paradox that people cannot sustain a lifestyle of a um, decent lifestyle in the community where they earn their wages. And it, and it goes, you know, suburb city, it goes yeah. across country borders where people migrate. I mean, can you imagine uh, the people that built, the construction workers building football stadiums in Qatar? They're from Nepal, mm-hmm. from Bangladesh mm-hmm. or elsewhere. They could never, the people constructing Dubai today nobody of them would be able to live in dubai right so so i it's a huge paradox that people migrate either short or far but the money they earn cannot sustain a lifestyle in the immediate city of where they earn that money they either send it home as remittance to to family members across borders Mm -hmm. or they migrate in and out of cities on a daily basis and and again i i can just observe here that the pc and Addis they are struggling the same thing you I bet you've seen it all over Africa, like small minibuses, the Toyota yeah. Hiases, yeah. you know, bringing large numbers of people in and out of city every day, uh, living in one situation, but, but working in a vastly different situation. Yeah. So that has both the global and the local perspective, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And it makes me think about the, I guess, the diminishing diversity that there is in communities. Without policy making the intervention. So when I think about it, you know, in my community now, there's public housing and then there's, that's decreasing. And then there's, you know, there were, there were attempts to have multiple income levels of, of homes and housing, but the policy environment is what enables that. And it has taken a backseat to, I want to say big business. And, and so where do you see, the opportunity and the actual ac- action in any of the the territories that you've worked in where, where you can confidently say, I think this is going to change?
1: No, I I, I think currently actually the, the plot thickens, the, the crisis is a little deeper. I know that you from, from the U.S. have experience with, with redlining and whatnot in terms of neighborhoods being divided, who can have access to mortgages and so on and so forth. Coming from where I'm from, looking at, at the labor perspective, as we talked about before, the, the increased casualization of work where you are more paid, you know, if, if you had a steady job as a driver or a taxi driver with steady income and a pay slip, you might be able to take a mortgage, buy an apartment, buy a house, uh, whatever, but you had some sort of security to show to the bank. Now, as an Uber driver, you don't have any documented income. As such, so so that prevents you again from joining into that, putting down roots, buying buying property, into the real estate market or whatever it may. So the casualization sort of extends beyond the work life and into you can't show a steady income that will uh, give you any any type of credit or anything like that. So I I think I think it's it's turned worse. Not to be a pessimist, but but that's how I see things are going. so so I think it be, it's becoming increasingly difficult with these more the casualization of work, the informal economy that we see in many places. So the less formality the less trust there is in a society, you know difficult the more difficult it gets to to get into that and to get that mix where you know a bricklayer, a dentist, and a school teacher would live in the same neighborhood or in the
0: same community. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. That we definitely don't see anymore. Yeah. Or fewer, much fewer and farther between. Definitely. Hmm. Okay. And that, uh, you know, if... If you really want to spin out of control, that leads
1: to uh, you know, increased polarization in society. There's nobody right. capable exactly. of seeing each other's perspective anymore because you're not acquainted. You don't meet at a daily basis at the local convenience store. So the implementation in that as well, the polarization that leads to, I would say, increased political tensions and, and, and things like that.
0: Mm, mm. You know, oftentimes people do equate unions with political action and and, and most political parties are looking for to curry favor. I want to say in, in every, every modern context, to curry favor with unions because they have a captive audience. And so what are some of the things that you uh, thought about in terms of maybe... Separating or, or figuring out how to create distance between the the labor movement and the political movement, or is or is it a good thing? <laughs>
1: I, th- I think uh, I think any any social movement, any civic movement benefits from having some sort of at least value based political orientation. Um, sure. Mm-hmm but 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 i want to separate that from party politics where you often see that a party managed to hijack the agenda and and draw in the unions to be an engine or uh, to propel their campaign and whatnot i i come from a union with with diversity and i know people who would never survive a political discussion? They would tear each other to bits if it came to <laughs> other sorts of, of policies. But when it comes to the, the common agenda around working conditions, jobs, job security, they are very much in line. So I think it's also sort of a bridge and unifier in many ways. Of course, Political discussions may arise even within a, a union in a union meeting or whatnot, but but I think trade unions are actually capable of, of of capturing left and right in the political spectrum as long as you 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 address the agenda at hand that has to do with working conditions and salaries. Sure, 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 sure. That
0: makes sense. That makes sense. Another just kind of thought. I, I'm I'm just fascinated because the future of work I think is is necessarily around workers organizing and understanding what that means. And so if you were to think about how do we prepare the workforce of the next generation to advocate for themselves or be the activists, or or even if there's hope for that to be the case, what do you think is necessary for young people to to understand about labor?
1: Excellent question. What would I tell my own kids? Well, first of all, organize, it's Organized, join <laughs> it. But I think uh, you know the I think there's much to learn from young generations that are engaging themselves in a lot of other agendas apart Mm -hmm. from the agenda that I've chosen. uh, You know, people do think collectively. People do want to, for instance, save the environment. People are conscious about sustainability. And I think many of the thoughts and values and ideas behind that is is very applicable uh, within uh, trade unions and and labor as well. I think it's just been sort of a missed agenda. And I see that people uh, read more about their own Identity more about anti discrimination into work life so so people are actually willing to fight for their identity for anti discrimination and sustainability in relation to work life. I think we just need to remind people about that, and from my perspective, I feel that sustainability at the moment has also been hijacked a little bit to be exclusively environmental sustainability mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but there's a huge element of social sustainability as well meaning that if you had a t-shirt that you purchased and and it's been produced in myanmar for instance you might have a company that's able to you know give you sort of a, a due diligence on environmental impact but people tend to forget that myanmar slid back into military dictatorship where trade unions are banned and a number of human rights are being suppressed that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. But people tend to think sustainability as only a green, uh, right. climate impact, sustainability, and I think we we need to somehow create a bridge in between. The two again. First of all, for us as conscious consumers, but also as workers in a value chain. You know, if you are at one end of a production line or a value chain, do you have any opinion on what's happening in the other end of the value chain? Right. If I was a seamstress yeah. and I'm and I'm producing t-shirts, do I have any care or concern for the people working cotton fields? We are all contributing to the same product, so uh, you know, maybe I should extend a bit of. Solidarity. Maybe I should at least be aware and conscious about their working conditions throughout the value chain. But I've been a part of doing a, a, a small project, for instance, in in retail in Denmark, where people working in the actual shop educate themselves on value chain, so that they could have an opinion on how do I feel about selling this T-shirt that was produced in Myanmar, for instance. I think that's first of all a global perspective. Uh, all value chains are global these days, so so there's no way. Around that, and then secondly, and that's where that's where your program fits so so perfectly. It's also at a local level. Look to your left, look to your right, see the people around you. Do you have anything in common? Would you be willing to go out of your own way to make sure that they are treated well, as well? And if you have that, you know, you're willing to go the extra mile for each other, I'm I'm pretty sure that we we can all achieve that middle income lifestyle.
0: Yeah, so I guess it's just kind of going into the heart of human values, right? So it's like teach if you teach teach people how to care for each other, we'll will be that much farther ahead in in yeah. the work life. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. And and not necessarily tap into the, into the that we are each other's competitors over jobs, mm-hmm. or we are each mm-hmm. other's competitors over a perk or a benefit. But that will only lead to, to, you know, a continuous race to the bottom.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well put. So that's a good point for me to go into my mindset hack. And so we're curious about what yours is. What is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? One that you practice, one that you know of, or one that you can imagine?
1: First of all, it's almost like you knew I have a sore issue with mindsets. <laughs> I don't, I, don't, I don't, honestly I don't believe in mindset change. I believe in oh, systemic changes.
0: Interesting. Okay. Okay. So
1: that let let me just give you a few examples. You you sure. you can decide at a mindset level that you want to work more efficiently, that mm-hmm. you want to be more productive in your workday.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And still because Outlook has a default setting of 1-hour meetings, you'll continue to have 1-hour meetings. Mm. your mindset is not going to change that or you can go and change the default setting to 45 minutes i'm sure you'll go, what you need to complete anyway in the 45 minute meeting and then you have 15 minutes to write up your notes and maybe answer an email before you go into the next meeting mm. I think systemic changes design beats mindset every day you can have mm. people that wants to you know People who have dedicated their lives to be lifelong learners, Mm -hmm. that's their mindset. Yet they'll enter a rush hour traffic every day as they have done so for the past 10 years without learning anything from it. You'll still get surprised that there's no parking spot. You'll still get surprised how difficult it is to get a taxi. And yet your mindset is to be a lifelong learner and you completely disregard you know, historical evidence of the country. You can't get a taxi. Change your mode of transport. Change your alarm to be half an hour earlier. I believe in systemic changes and design changes, mindset changes. Mm. It is so difficult to sustain Mm. motivation, to sustain change throughout gray weather, raining, traffic, screaming kids. You know, everything just debuckles mindset changes. But design and systemic changes, I think, are more has a better chance of being successful.
0: Okay. But wouldn't you say that it requires at least a single mindset to change to ignite the systemic change? All right. Fair point. (laughs) 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 But I I, I understand understand where you're you're going with that. I understand because exactly what you're saying, and I think you made a great point about, you know, people say that they're lifelong learners or this, but yet they still, yeah, they continue to be cogs in the same machine that is in many ways continuing to fail them uh, and fail us. So, so I think that's a really good point is to figure out how to direct and coordinate all of the individual mindsets that change for, for a brighter and better overall systematic um, evolution.
1: I believe so. Yeah. Systemic changes and design changes. Put up uh, put up barriers for yourself. Yeah, uh, p- p- Change the default setting to be a 45-minute meeting instead of, you know, just without any further conscious decision, you book a mm-hmm. one-hour meeting because mm-hmm. Outlook tells you to.
0: Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Which is so true. It's, and I, I get with what you're saying about it's the entire um, like you were saying, the verticals about about all of these things that really will be the difference between success and stagnation.
1: I think the the, the systemic changes harbors a bigger chance of success, at least yeah. a more long lasting. Until yeah. you give up, and change the default setting back, or whatever you do. Right. But I think right. if you want to do it through brute will power yeah. and mindset change, I I would argue. That you would fail in most cases if you want yeah. to do it by sheer willpower.
0: Okay, that's a first on the mindset act, but I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's why I love these conversations. <laughs> All right, um, I just want to ask one more question about unions, and then let's talk a little about a little bit about the Tobias. That is. Not working and not doing union work, but but in his own space somehow, some way. So, first of all, where 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 do you see twenty twenty four putting us globally um, in terms of labor and and the workforce, and and particularly in the regions that you're focused on now, or pr- more particularly, I think your your attention is very much on Africa and Asia, if I'm not mistaken. So, tell us a little bit more about what you what you see. Um, Coming in 2024 with progress in for the worker.
1: All right. So I think there's one. This is a global issue, but but largely pertaining to developing countries because they they are mm-hmm. m- more dependent on uh, how can I say a, a, a universal rights framework. There's been a 10-year dispute within the International Labour Organization, which is a tripartite system under the UN, where you have governments, you have employers represented, business, and you have workers represented. The right to withhold labor power, the right to strike, has been disputed (laughs) for the past 10 years. Mm. Does workers have the right to strike? No mm-hmm. agreement or compromise has been able to, to, to be made. So now I actually think they're trying to make a court case out of it. Mm. I would keep a keen eye on that because if we as labor lose that court case. Can you imagine no protection of withholding your labor power? How can you bargain? How can you negotiate if you are forced to work on an agreement that you disagree with? Right. So globally, mm. that's, that's going to be a big make or break point for, for the way that you know, trade unions, labor relations with you is or are mm-hmm. structured. That's something mm-hmm. I'm looking for. Don't know if it'll be conclusive in twenty twenty four, but I think that's one of the things that's that's going to be a big issue.
0: Okay. Okay. And we'll keep that on our radar because <laughs> yeah, I think you 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 make a great point is when you take away the workers' right to withhold, <laughs> then they just become slaves. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I am puzzled how we got to this point where
1: that has been for 10 years now disputed. Mm-hmm. Do we actually have the right to withhold our labor power or can we be yeah. forced to work? That's yeah. scary.
0: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So, so
1: the non-union part.
0: Yes. Yes. So um, are you a reader, a watcher or a listener, or what other things do you do in your spare time? And if you are a reader, a watcher or a listener, what are some of your favorite reads, watches or listens?
1: I, I used to read when I do now. Uh, yeah. But now I, I I take in many of my books as audiobooks or as yes da da da, da podcasts. Yes, and uh, <laughs> a podcast series that I I keenly follow is a Danish podcast series, and and loosely translated, it it reads into the the final frontier or the outmost frontier, and it's about adventurous stretching back from some of our first polar explorers in Denmark. Uh, going to Greenland, mm. going to the North Pole and whatnot. It's all these Renaissance people that push the boundaries, that decided to go to the jungle to find a lost tribe or to you know, survive two years in Arctic conditions because they happened to miss their boat home. Or, you know, adventures that really push the boundaries that has nothing to do with my work just yeah, my that's fascination fascinating. of culture, yeah. landscape hunting i mean and myself i, I it was a childhood dream to come to africa it was big it was something i've never seen before i'm a yeah. hunter so the idea of the wildlife in africa and all that and i get a good kick out of this uh, podcast series because it's everything there it is People who had to eat their dogs on an expedition in Greenland. It is people getting lost somewhere in the Himalayas. It's people getting lost in Africa. True adventurers that went far and wide to cover some of the blanks on the map. And that's also what saddens me a little bit about this Guilty Pleasure podcast. There's not enough blank spots on the map anymore. Mm. I feel like kind of robbed Mm. out of good opportunities by being born in the generation I'm in. (laughs) Had it been a hundred years ago, that would still be blank spots to find. I feel like most has been covered now. That saddens me a little bit.
0: Yeah, I guess that's a true point. You'd have to to go really deep to find, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So um, I'm sure that's in in Danish, the podcast.
1: (laughs) That is in Danish, yeah, Unfortunately, I yeah. won't be able to share that with the global audience.
0: But yeah, but I'll put it know. in there anyway. Might we we do we do have listeners all over the world, so uh, <laughs> we'll put the name of that in the show notes for those who might be interested or have some kind of AI translator that will allow for Ooh. an understanding of that history. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds. That's a great one to share, and yeah, I, I understand. An audiobooks. So you listen to audiobooks. I do okay.
1: uh, both, uh, um, both just, uh, you know, the novels, but also as, as much, um, private professional pasty yes. as I can right. do, uh, um, yeah. within my field. So, so yeah. yeah, usually, usually you'd find me with, uh, headphones and an audiobook, uh, if yep. I'm doing the dishes or if I'm out for a walk or a plane yep. ride, or usually there's an audio book going on, uh, of, of whatever nature it might be.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. We'll take it. I am also an audiophile, so I can absolutely appreciate that same kind of filling the the time, the headspace while doing other things. So, Yeah. Oh, so Tobias, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time for us to come together and have this conversation. I'm encouraged and watchful. About, you know, what, what's, what's to take place in, in labor. And I thank you for the work that you're doing because it's, it's meaningful work and it's important that workers understand that they, they have rights and that they are meant to be exercised. And, and that is the way that we will manifest a new world. You know, I mean, we're trying and we'll get there if if we can get the people like you to continue to, to be working for the workers.
1: Yeah, I hope so. And if your if your thing is is workers and workers conditions as it is for me, or it is about education, or if it's about your concern for local transportation, organize, get together in civic society groups, take initiative and and you know take responsibility for your own near community. Whatever your gig might be, uh, it just so happens to fall upon me that it it became labor issues. But I think in general, just get involved. Get organized, structure yourselves, become a force to be reckoned with within whatever narrative scope or agenda that you uh, that 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 is is important to you,
0: yeah, wow. those are great last thoughts to share with our audience, especially as we think about starting this new year. So again, I appreciate you. This has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts, like, share, subscribe, check out the show notes and leave us a review. We'd love to have a hundred reviews in 2024. So if you haven't already, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any of the platforms that you listen to, leave us a review. And until next time, bye for now.